as you start to understand all the dynamics of different channels and you think about how to understand diminishing returns in different ways by those channels and incrementality, you can start to apply consistent frameworks as you sort of walk down how best for something like TV can I think about incrementality. Why do some companies succeed in driving growth while others fail? How do some individuals advance in their careers to lead teams that change industries? In the age of mobile, these are the stories of the companies shaping the way we interact with our world and the people who drive their growth. Hi, everyone. We are so excited to have Anthony Scarpacci to join our show today. Anthony is currently the VP of Growth at Acorns and has been in growth and performance marketing for over 10 years. He has led teams across various subscriptions, travel, and fintech brands, ranging from Betterment to Blue Apron. Prior to joining Acorns, he was most recently at Nerd Wallet after they acquired his former company, Fundera. Welcome, Anthony. We're so thrilled to learn about your growth story. Thank you. It's great to be here. Well, first, congrats on your new milestone. You're the new VP of Growth at Acorns. Tell us a bit about yourself. Tell us about what Acorn does and kind of your journey. How What do you do there? Sure. Absolutely. So as the VP of Growth at Acorns, I'm responsible for all the things to get sort of new customers to the brand. And that spans a, cr- a few different pillars. The first being our traditional media mix of offline and digital advertising. The second being our own channels of referral and SEO and content marketing. The third being affiliates and partnerships to drive growth for us. And then fourth being a partner to the product and engineering teams on different things that we can go do to drive conversion rate optimization or increase the lifetime value of our customers to just help sort of fulfill the cycle to help us grow. Cool. So tell us a bit about what Acorns actually does. What is Acorns? Acorns is an app to help you invest and save for your future, essentially, in a nutshell. And that composes a diversified portfolio of ETFs that we recommend to customers to help them get started with as little as the roundups of their spare change to recurring investments that they could do with as little as $5 a week. So it's all in service of education and tools to equip everyday Americans to know that they too can be investing. And it doesn't have to be this big, scary idea for the 1%. And it's all about leveraging that access and, and that journey for those new customers. So really sort of a passionate brand that I know and love. And as you highlighted earlier on in my career experience with companies like Betterment and at NerdWallet, I've personally been very passionate about using technology and scalable solutions to help get everyday Americans access to sort of things to improve their lives. And with Acorns, it's a perfect way to do that. That's awesome. Very cool. I love it. And I have been a customer for a very long time. I think since probably the beginning, I think I've had my account for five, six years and it's grown a lot and it's been, it's been really cool. Well, Anthony, you've mentioned that you've worked with a lot of different channels, including TV, radio, print, digitals, and some of these channels are extremely hard to measure. How do you think about attribution, measurement, and then the distinction between precision versus accuracy? Tell us more about your philosophy around this. Yeah, absolutely. It is one of the things I love to geek out about probably more than anything. Yay! It's a very big puzzle to go solve that you get to come in at at any company. And early in my career, when I was first starting out, 
I remember looking to the corner office where the CMO was and I said, how do I go be him one day? And I realized that part of it was I had to learn how to deploy money effectively to go drive growth. And as they say, marketing is oftentimes the number one or number two expense for many businesses next to people. And so really what I did early in my career is I said, I have to go be an expert in every single channel. And so I used that opportunity to be an IC capacity, somebody who managed television, direct mail, everything in between. And fortunately, early in my career, I got the opportunity to, to run direct mail. And that is a program with endless data, tons of precision, the ability to really do good deterministic targeting of individuals, as well as attribution on the back end. So in a telecom context, I was able to say, I sent direct mail to this household and did this household in the next 15 to 30 days have a satellite dish on them. And so I was able to at least map the attribution with a really, really high fidelity there. Now, incrementality side of that is another question because while you can say they definitely were exposed to the piece of direct mail, you don't know that that was the thing that got them to sign up. So in the case of direct mail, though, the beauty of it is as you build models and you say you want to target the top 10% or the top decile of a model, for example, you can hold out 10 or 20% of that decile, see how the rest of that group performs, and then really cut apart the, the lift versus that controlled population to see, okay, not only do I have perfect attribution, but now I know what percentage of that is incremental. And so you can take the total spend divided by incremental customers in the test versus the control to really start to understand your true incremental CAC and your marginal CAC. So that part was really exciting for me. And then fast forward, then I get dumped into channels like display and television, which reduce more and more of the signal. And then you have these ideas of you through attribution, you need to consider things like spot attribution of spikes to site visits after TV spots are there. And that was definitely an area where things started to get more complicated. And you had to say, how am I going to justify what the ROI is on this channel? And how do I think about that? And so going really deep into each channel helped me understand the nuances of how to think about diminishing returns, influence, saturation, reach, and frequency, all of those components. But on the point that you, you alluded to on precision versus accuracy, it reminds me of a really pivotal experience I had at a prior company where I was tasked with managing display advertising. And so naturally a hard channel to think about optimizing. And I had to say, well, what is a view through conversion worth? How do I do this? And I had this grand vision at the time of building the perfect MTA or multi-touch attribution solution where I could stitch every click and every view through impression, through double click and Facebook and everywhere I could collect all this third-party data together stitch it into a perfect storyline from the first exposure of ad number one all the way to that final touch that drove the person to sign up in an onboarding flow. And I thought I was going to solve the puzzle. I was going to fix it and just solve what CAC was right for the channel and know really how to spend each dollar. What I realized though, and I didn't appreciate at the time, is to get closer and closer to that unified model, that unified vision, it was a lot of work. There's a lot of work on our account teams. There's a lot of work on our engineering team. There's a lot of work on me to try to stitch those things together. And as we started to iterate and get better and better and put things together, 
something funny happened. I started to see that the story of what the customer acquisition cost we would attribute to a channel was in that framework didn't move that much. It was maybe plus or minus 10 to 20%. And as I took a step back on that, I started to realize, well, just like there's diminishing return curves of a marketing channel, there's diminishing returns if you continue to invest in precision of your marketing technology. And is that incremental precision, incremental cost of your team's work and time and money and MarTech tools going to tell you something different to make a different decision? And so that was really key for me to start to understand where is the 80-20 rule on some of these things so that I can make sure I understand I can coach my teams in future roles on, well, we got most of the way there. Odds are this model that we'd all love to build because it's super cool and we were geeking out about it is not going to tell us a dramatically different story on what our investment level should be for a channel, what the ROI on the channel will be, or how we're going to behave in general. So that was really sort of critical for me. And then as you start to understand all the dynamics of different channels and you think about how to understand diminishing returns in different ways by those channels and incrementality, you can start to apply consistent frameworks as you sort of walk down how best for something like TV can I think about incrementality? How can I do that for a digital channel? How can I do that in the case that I have the beautiful direct mail program that you run? But most startups today, a direct mail is usually not sort of the first core channel that they use to drive growth. That's such an interesting thing. I think there's always, you can always go more and more. The measurement can never end, right? There's always so much you can do. And I think the way you've put it is really interesting. It does take a lot of effort, especially that last mile. And I hadn't thought about it that way, but it's a really interesting concept. You've mentioned incrementality. For those who don't really know and don't think about incrementality that much, give us a primer. How do you think about incrementality? How have you measured it in the past? Let's really nerd out on it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> let's cool. do it. I love it. So sort of piece one is first there's attribution and then there's incrementality. Attribution is I can associate this marketing impression to this customer conversion. Incrementality is did that impression drive the behavior of that customer? So one of the best examples of that is when thinking about retargeting campaigns. So that was also something I worked on when I was in an IC capacity. And all of the retargeting display companies were telling me what a great EPA they were driving for me. And I fundamentally knew, especially from the experience with direct mail, that they're taking a pixel off of all the people who have visited your site, and then they're sending them ads to try to get them to come back. And some of them do, and then they convert. But if you think about incrementality, as you said, in a primary capacity, you know inherently people who visited your site naturally have some non-zero propensity to come back and purchase from you or sign up for your service. So you can't say 100% of the people that are retargeted with the display yeah, exactly. only came back because of that. So then you have to look and say, what are the tools and frameworks I have to start to peel away what portion of that audience was going to come in anyway, whether I ran that campaign or not. And so different channels have different tools to do pure holdout experiments, where you can hold out a set of cookies, you can hold out a set of households, you can hold out a set of markets within a certain 
sort of geography, such as the United States, if you're doing something like local TV testing. And then you can look at what you would have expected to achieve in those baseline markets or baseline populations. Look at what you actually achieved when you added marketing spend and impressions on top of it. And really try to carve out the delta there between your baseline and then the incremental activity in those markets where you spent money on marketing to understand what you can say the true return on that is. Because you shouldn't take credit for everything. I would yeah, love to make sort of my job a little easier. But the reality is, is you have to be really disciplined about how you think about every last dollar that you spend and the justification for it. That's cool. That makes a lot of sense. How about the other part you've talked about, multi-touch? And when you do marketing, you end up the user uses so many different channels. How do you think about multi-touch attribution and what's your favorite model? Do you believe in first touch, last touch? And if it's my touch, how do you weight it? Yeah. Now, what I tell my team now is multi-touch attribution is dead. What I tell them now is to think about any bottoms-up solutions that we build as fractional attribution. So there's a jockeying of credit amongst channels of how you distribute the customers that come in. But whether you are in an app-based brand where ATT has wreaked havoc and has started to change how you think about measurement in the landscape broadly, or you could be an advertiser in a lot of different sort of cases, whether it's retail or web-based, in all of those frameworks, that perfect unified vision I talked about earlier of stitching together every single thing that a customer saw, it's dead. And it's probably for the best. I would say it is for the best from a consumer first standpoint. But what that means is there are still tools and ways for you to think about within your mix using the signals that you do have to apply frameworks of saying how you give partial credit. And some of that is through ad hoc experiments that you can do. Some of it is through different third-party tools. And then it's really about pairing that bottoms-up framework with also some top-down framework like a media mix model or something else to help you ultimately triangulate some range within a reasonable confidence interval of what you think each channel is delivering for the business. So you really have to stitch together more than one methodology to get to what the true performance of a given marketing campaign is. Oh, wow. Very cool. I love the idea of fractional attribution. That's kind of how we do it at the branch and we build our own model where we, we apply a time decay and we look at all the touches. But I never thought about, we still call it multi-touch, but I think the idea of calling it fractional attribution is, is very cool, actually. Yeah, because it's a little bit of semantics, but it's important to change the framing that the team is thinking about solving the problem with. If they are going into the problem thinking that they're going to be able to do what we were just talking about of connect touch points, they're going to fail. They're going to fall on their face. But if they start to think about it in terms of, I know these channels are interacting with each other to drive ultimate consumer conversion. And I know there's halo from different channels that are assisting what is ultimately a last touch conversion. If I can run a series of experiments by each channel, I can do some modeling that's, that's channel-specific and portfolio-specific, and I can apply the best of all of these, I can start to come up with a framework of saying whether somebody comes in assigned as organic or somebody comes in assigned to another channel, how should I think about interaction effects? And then at the global portfolio basis, start to attribute sort of portions of that customer 
a little bit more evenly based on those influencing channels so that it's more representative of what a de average view of the business and the portfolio is delivering. That makes a lot of sense. And I've heard you say, talk about this idea of business significance versus statistical significance when it comes to measurement. Can you share about the difference between them and, and how should you know, our listeners think about that? Sure. Yeah. Statistical significance is another thing I geeked out about when I was early in my career because I was able to have a PhD data scientist take me under his wing when I started. And he was a mentor of mine to teach me about confidence intervals, p-values, test design, all of those things. And I geeked out about it. I, I thought it was really, really powerful and how to run experiments as I was running them in my different channels. And so that was the truth. That was the way. And it was also possible because I was working with such large scale when I was at this one business. Then when I moved into the startup space of, of hyper growth, what I saw was that same eagerness and passion for statistical modeling and significance and that, that level of rigor. But it was, I think, in a way, it was paralyzing to a degree because the purity of some of those frameworks would hurt your velocity. It would hurt your ability to move fast on things when you need to move fast, when you need to go constantly find the next best thing to go improve conversion rate, drive scale, and find winners. And if you allow three months for an experiment to understand if a 2% lift is statistically significant, you're not spending your time on the right things. And so what I had worked to do in my role since I entered the startup world is try to make sure that personally for myself, but also for the teams, that we're balancing the level of analytical rigor with also some common sense of saying, well, we run an experiment, let's say there's not a measurable lift, but people want it to continue because they want to reach statistically significant moment for that experiment. I try to advocate and say, let's hit pause. We know this idea that we had, this hypothesis has not driven a home run because we would have seen it already if it did. So let's pick the one that aligns with what our business goals are, move forward, and then focus on the next thing that could be a home run. Because if you don't start to see any signal, that itself is a signal. That itself is something to tell you, this thing is probably consistent with how the other one would perform. So if that's the thing that makes sense with where we're going, the direction of our business or messaging or value propositions, it's probably a low-risk bet to go make that and then move forward on something else. And if you really had pure SAP SIG rigor in everything that you were doing, the number of experiments you could run, especially if you're a smaller company with smaller sample sizes, is probably pretty limited. But you need to take the balance of saying, well, I am a smart marketer. I'm a smart human. I know how humans think. Is it rational to me, for me to say this would be parity or better? And then based on the results, okay, are you confident enough to just move on that and then focus your time on the next thing? Because every minute spent on one experiment or one test is time not spent on the next thing that you have in queue. So it's definitely a balance. And I understand why there is that passion to be really, really rigorous with it. But you have to strike a middle ground there so that you can balance velocity and confidence in what you're experimenting. That's cool. I love it. So you've talked so much about measurement, how to measure the importance to a business. 
I'm curious, I want to also get some examples of things that you've done that you're proud of. So tell me one campaign that you think worked really well and one that failed miserably so others can learn from them. <laughs> so one that worked really well, I remember was a little bit of a shock to me too. And it was earlier in my career and I was managing FSIs at the time, which stand for freestanding inserts. So these are the things that are shoved in the middle of newspapers that are distributed across the nation. And that was where I first learned about testing because I learned you could have different creative designs, you could put different toll-free numbers on them, and then that would be your way to sort of measure and sort of an offline equivalent of digital marketing, what the response rates were and the conversion rates were of these different advertisements. And I was constantly running experiments with them. And then I was tasked with this opportunity for us to do a co-marketing campaign with one of our partner brands. And they were going to subsidize some of the channel spend to go promote them, which was exciting. But I still had to deliver the ultimate subscriber growth targets for my business. And everybody on my team was telling me, there's no way we have this champion creative that we've tested into. There's no way you can find a way to bring them and their messaging and creative story into this advertisement and still hit their goals. And so that kind of lit a fire under me. And I said, I'm going to find a way. I'm going to do this. I'm going to make some bold decisions. And we're going to go see if we can do this. And while it may seem small, like a freestanding insert, a little piece of paper in a newspaper, this was considerable spend that we were so considerable activations you know, tied to this campaign that was set to run on a weekly basis. And so I worked with the creative team. And what I did was I said, well, let's make some big bets. Let's let the creative team really go after it with whatever they're excited about. Because prior, they haven't had an opportunity to really push their thinking. They've always been given a template of saying, this is what works. You can test one little variable. That's going to be our experiment. Otherwise, you don't have a lot of creative license. And so as I briefed them, I said, here's an opportunity for us to do something big. A little bit of the risk is subsidized because of the partner sort of pitching in on the campaign. But as I briefed them, I still said, well, let's make sure we apply some direct response best practices. So we had strong calls to action. We had an, urgent, we had an offer. We had urgency. We had clear value propositions, reasons to believe all of those things, social proof. And so I said, I can still use all of those things that I know have driven winning creative before. And I let the creative team sort of unleash their ideas on this ad. Let's see what can happen. And we did it. And it won by over 20%. Wow. And I just remember being so excited, not only because I was able to sort of silence the critics, but it was also something the creative team was really excited about too, to go see that they were able to drive those results. And I think the takeaway that I got from that was not only trust in your principles and your frameworks of what you know works within marketing as you make big bets, but also there was probably a factor there about creative fatigue that I didn't really appreciate at the time, where we were constantly very disciplined about. It's always what we call the champion creative and it doesn't get replaced until you have a challenger or a test creative beat it. And then that rolls into the winning rotation. But we had run that one ad for months and months and months without beating it. So there was very much a creative fatigue element to it. We didn't appreciate. And 
sort of now more than ever, as you see the half-life of a creative ad, especially digital channels, gets shorter and shorter with everybody's attention spans and how different channels operate today. It really, it really applies in everything that we do now about continuing to feed the machines and feed the channels more and more creative for experimentation. That's such a good lesson. I appreciate you sharing it. How about something that didn't work well, that you thought was going to work well, but it didn't? Yeah, I think what I would just say there is broadly, it's landing pages have always surprised me and the destination for landing pages. I've had really strong ideas about certain imagery or certain headlines or whether to avoid a landing page and go right into a funnel or vice versa. You never know. I love it. That's a really good one. I've always been surprised either positively or so that, that makes a lot of sense. And I think testing is definitely the way to go. No one ever knows, right? So I'd love to kind of hear a bit about your own growth experience. How did you get to where you are today? How important were things like mentorship, learning in your journey? Mentorship is, has been critical to my career growth. When I was younger, I was naturally very curious and excited about a lot of things and would get borderline obsessive. So in high school, I was in the broadcasting department. We had a little sort of TV and radio station department. So I dove into that world and became the head of the broadcasting station and would put on our little projects on the local TV on Saturdays. And then, and then naturally had an inclination to want to be a leader from that day forward and, and into college and different roles. But in all of those cases, whether it was broadcasting high school or working at a music venue in college, there was always a mentor and somebody that was inspiring me and pushing me and educating me. So along the way, there was always a mentor, a coach, a teacher that was both being a cheerleader and energizing me and getting excited about this idea and then also demonstrating what success could look like in those roles. And so all of those things just fed sort of my desire to continue to get better and better so I could go be that person one day. And really, I totally subscribe to the ethos that no man is an island, nobody is self-made, that behind every great story and person that you admire behind them is a ton of people who gave them a chance, who coached them, who taught them the lessons or opened the doors for them for where they got to along the way. And so I try to sort of live that in, in what I do going forward. So I mentor a few marketers outside of Acorns. I try to be really focused and intentional with my team. But I also continue to seek insights and learnings from the mentors in my career. And then professionally, once I started to go really deep, like I mentioned, of trying to learn every channel and trying to be an expert so I could be a CMO one day, I just continued to knock on the doors of all the leaders at the companies that I was at asking them for 30 minutes so I could learn from them, so I could highlight in small ways that I was hungry, eager, and talented. And I wanted to be challenged and be given big opportunities and for me to demonstrate my capabilities. And through all of those things, while they not only helped me get from one level to another, they also helped me build really, really great relationships with a lot of mentors. And one of them was... James Moorhead, who was the CMO when I entered my career in telecom, 
And then he since became Acorn's CMO and then hired me as the head of growth at the time. So it was really great because it came full circle that his mentorship ultimately led to training me to be somebody who is capable to be his his right-hand person on the growth side of the business. So yeah, really, really important part to me. And so I just make sure knowing and reflecting on mentorship as being critical for me getting to where I am to, to continue to pay it forward to younger marketers along the way. That's really awesome and really great to hear. And speaking about, you've talked so much about driving growth, but I know you yourself have been viral at some point. You have gone viral. Tell us the story of how that happened. Yes, yes. Much to my chagrin, I have gone viral once. The story behind that is when I was working on direct mail campaigns, we did all those programs in-house. And one of the coworkers I had actually, in his former life, worked at a vinyl production shop where he had massive printers and he would wrap cars with promotional logos and things. And he still had all that equipment when he sort of moved into corporate marketing with me. And one week, it happened to be my birthday week. I was traveling to go visit our agency in another state. And he and the rest of my team designed a team magazine like Bop. I think Bop is the right magazine. All pink and yellow vinyl wrap around my entire desk at the office with Justin Bieber all over it. Different pictures of him from the baby era to when he got older. And it was done professionally because he knew how to do this with cars and things. So of course, he could do a, a little corner desk. And he wrapped it completely. I came back to the office. I was just shocked. And in my state of shock of how impressive this was and hilarious it was, one of the coworkers snapped a photo of me and my reaction. And then fast forward like two days, it's a Sunday and I think I'm watching football with some friends. And then I get a phone call from one of my friends from another state. And he said, Hey, do you know you're the number one post on Reddit right now on the home page? I'm, wow. like, I'm like, what are you talking about? Why am I on Reddit? And then I go on my phone and I see I'm the number one post. And it said something to the effect of, Justin Bieber vinyl desk prank. And then I go in and it's a picture of me with my shocked expression and this entire sort of desk. And it was hilarious. It was fascinating. Reading the comments was very funny because I was follically challenging when I was younger. So I was the young bald guy and got comparisons to Moby and all sorts of stuff in the comments. So it was very funny to see in a small way what it's like for those who are actually in the spotlight to get all the commentary along the way. But it was still very, very funny. And uh, just accolades more so to the person who put it together than anything I, I did. I was just reacting. Is the post alive? I think you could still find the photo if you type something along the lines of Justin Bieber vinyl desk. I think they're still on somewhere in the vast corners of the internet. Very cool. <laughs> And you also like kind of play music in your free time. Tell us about that. And do you think that influences the way you think about growth and work in any way? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I try to play music as much as I can. Right now, I do play guitar for a songwriter in New York, which is fun. So every month or two, we'll play shows at little, little dive bars in the 
the Lower East Side or different areas of Manhattan and Brooklyn, which is great. And then I also try to find time to go to open blues jams and, and jam with friends that, at different spaces in the city, at least monthly. So I love it. It's definitely sort of one of my favorite things in the world. I love music. And I do think there are some sort of things related to, you know, marketing and teamwork and leadership and those things. In the music that I like to play, a lot of it is about improvisation and jamming and open-endedness. And it really fosters a space for you to focus on listening and not just talking, right? Or not just playing. You have to pay attention to what other people are doing and be able to compliment them and not drown them out and find the right balance. And there's also an element of when you do get locked in with those other people and you really show what you're capable of with a few people together, you just get in a deep state of flow and you're just going and everything else escapes you and it's bliss. It's wonderful. And I think there's definitely something there I try to apply with my teams and how we work of trying to make sure you build the momentum so everybody is their best self and jiving well and feeding off of each other in complementary ways so that the team can ultimately be the best version of itself. And I'm sure for those who have young children or have seen School of Rock, which is a great program for kids to get exposed to music, it's like listening to my favorite band is the Trucks to Deshi band, but you can take the Grateful Dead, you could take, you know, any other more famous sort of rock bands out there who are playing live today. And you could compare it to sort of school of rock. They're just starting, they're not quite listening to each other. They're at different tempos, they're out of tune. The bands that do extended improvisation are really listening to each other. They're just firing in all cylinders and it's really something that you hold when you can see it. So how do I sneak that magic into how our team works is sort of part of my, my main day, sort of day in day out. Very cool. Makes me think of flow, but instead of personal flow, team flow. I love it. Yeah, cool. Cool. So we've got to know you. You've shared some really cool things. We usually end with three, a little bit of more like on the sillier side questions, just to give our listeners another facets of who you are. Are you ready for our lightning round? Oh, let's go. If you had to delete all the apps and you could only keep one on your phone, what would you keep? That is, that's really impossible <laughs> question. I think... The first thing that comes to mind is one of the ticketing apps like Ticketmaster Access because I go to see a lot of music on a monthly basis. So I literally can't get into those venues unless I have my tickets. So there's a few of those. So it's not one app. So I think if I had to pick one app, I would say probably the F1 app, which is the one that allows you to track everything with Formula One on the upcoming race times, all of that. And over the last few years since the pandemic, my wife and I really got into Formula One after watching Drive to Survive on Netflix and I haven't missed the race since. And that is really sort of my lifeblood for staying on the track and making sure I understand for each weekend what time zone am I going to be in to watch the race because it's international. So it's so definitely a top priority and I got to stay on top of it with, uh, with that now. So can't be without that one. Very cool. Definitely the first one to mention that one. How about if you had an app that allowed you to talk to an animal, what would you pick? It would have to be my cat. There's no question about that. And my cat is very sassy and she does a great job of hustling my wife and I and making us think that the other one didn't feed her. So she gets fed twice 
whenever it's time for can of wet food. And I would love to just sit down and have a real conversation with her about the games that she plays on us and get to understand what goes in her psyche a little bit more. Cats are so sassy. I have this other dog, my dog and this other dog, and my neighbor's cat she just came and she was just sitting and looking at them and they were going crazy. <laughs> She's just like, cool, go crazy. I'm just going to sit here and look at you. I'm like, man, that's some sass right there. Yeah, yeah. And okay, last one, an unlikely app on your phone. So most unlikely app on my phone is, I think, this app called Office Football Pool Mobile. And it has a very bad UI. It could definitely use some pro bono consultants to help them out. So if anybody's listening who does UX and UI design, you should reach out to them and offer your services. But that's an app I have on my phone because a few members of my family across the country do a weekly football pool. And it's a way for me to stay connected with them. So I basically go in once a week I hit the select favorites and randomize the rankings of them. And then it just gets me set up for the week ahead and gives me an excuse. That's awesome. Love it. Cool. Well, this was really fun. I learned a lot. I love nerding out on all the measurements and all the examples. Just kind of hearing about your story. So thank you so much, Anthony, for being on the show today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening. If you like the show, please leave a review wherever you listen to this and share with someone trying to grow their career. Until next time, keep growing.